0: You are listening to a podcast from The National. Welcome to the first episode of Current Affairs. I'm your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Change is coming to the region, from the destruction of one of the oldest mosques in Islam by ISIL militants, to the escalation of the biggest diplomatic crisis in the GCC. History throughout the Middle East is being defined by events this week. But change has also come a bit closer to home here in Abu Dhabi. The National this week relaunched under new ownership from our newsroom in 2454. To help me go through all the developments, I am joined by my colleagues, Mina Al Uraibi, editor in chief of The National, and Mustafa Rawi, assistant editor in chief. Mina and Mustafa, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Very good to be here. We're actually recording this podcast from our new studio in our newsroom. I think that that it's a great indication of what to expect from the paper. Mina, give us a little bit of an insight into how the move has been. In essence, it was a relaunch, but I imagine in many ways, it might have felt like starting from scratch.
1: The move's been really exciting. We've been working for months on the relaunch, and to see it finally happening is wonderful. Of course, the thing with newspapers is you get the first edition out, and the next day you have to think about your second one. So we're busy at work. We definitely haven't taken a pause, but it was just great to get the first day of working all together as a team, which was the 1st of July, to produce our first newspaper on the 2nd of July, and also to see the website go live, which has been exciting. The great thing about the National is that there's so much to build on in terms of success, but we're also getting a chance to really bring it up to speed when it comes to digital news, when it comes to things like podcasting, having the studio here. Being based out of 2454 in Abu Dhabi is wonderful. Um, the new offices are are beautiful and snazzy, and we hope we'll have many people come through and see it themselves. But more importantly is really the content, and I think that what we've been able to do is keep some of the truly stellar writers the serious journalism that the national is known for but also have an opportunity to expand our horizons to expand some of our writers to bring in new correspondence we now have a, a london bureau and i think that will help us also to get some perspectives from abroad and to cover the sto- stories that are international but are of significance to us here in the middle east or to those who actually care about the region Many people ask me, who are your readers? Our readers are not segmented by, in my opinion, age or uh, ethnicity or nationality. In r- reality, we see our readers, or listeners, uh, or viewers even for some of our video content as being those people who are curious, forward-thinking, uh, who are either living in the region or interested in the region, have a stake in it, I want to know what's going on here, but also care about the successes and how we can make things work better and to actually look at all the opportunity and potential of this region.
2: Certainly, there's an appetite and a hunger out there for, for the national to continue to grow mm-hmm. and evolve. And the response since we launched on Sunday uh, has been quite amazing. Mm-hmm. And with the feedback we've been getting uh, from People who've been reading and following the National for some time has been really positive. So it it heralds a really good future. Mm -hmm. And as Mina said, the team's really talented. So I think it's just the beginning. And as we get into our groove over the next few months, there'll be a lot to show. And I think our our readers, our audiences, our collaborators, our partners will be very happy.
0: Excellent. Uh, The Middle East Explain. That's the new motto. Is this a statement of the direction you want the newspaper to go in?
1: I think there is a real sense that so much is going on in the Middle East at the moment that it's hard to just pontificate about it or just try to report. It really is about explanations, and that's what we hope to do. It is a new direction. We're still, of course, very much interested in what's going on in the UAE, but it really is a testament to how important the UAE is now to Middle East Mm developments. And not only in terms of politics, but economics, trends, uh, importantly social developments, you have some of the best and the brightest people all congregating at the UAE, whether they live here or they pass through here at least once a year now. So it's to be at the heart of the UAE and look at the Middle East, but also the world trends. So in a way, it's to say that we're explaining, we're trying to raise awareness and cast a light on issues that are not always covered well but also to say that yes it's it's regional it is of significance that we are in the UAE and we will always cover UAE mm-hmm. stories but it's also to take it to the next step
2: it's easy to see how far sighted the decision to launch the national 9 years ago actually was now with this hindsight because uh, back then Abu Dhabi and the UAE was a, a different place very dynamic and fast growing but if we think about uh, the role that the UAE has now in the region and the wider world to have a, a media platform in the English language like the national is very much needed. So while it does feel like we're starting again in many ways, being able to build on that platform has made it a little bit easier because starting from scratch, really starting from scratch now, to to build uh, an English language media outlet like this Absolutely. from nothing would be, I think, almost impossible mm. at this stage compared to, to having the chance to build on what we
0: had before. In other exciting news in Abu Dhabi, uh The laptop ban, passengers can now use gadgets, flights from Abu Dhabi to the US. Earlier this year, the US imposed this ban on 10 airports, uh, predominantly in the Middle East. So now that it's been lifted, it's a huge win for Etihad Airlines and Abu Dhabi ahead of the opening of the new airport. Mustafa, tell us what this means for Emirati Aviation. It's pretty big for Abu Dhabi in the UAE,
2: Etihad Airways, Abu Dhabi Airports. And it's it's more than just having a very inconvenient ban uh, for most passengers flying through those 10 airports lifted. Um, it's actually the beginning of a new sort of era of enhanced security at up to 280 airports around the world. See, in March, when they initially instituted the ban as a result of a U.S. decision that there was some unspecified threat related to these devices, um, it caused... A lot of chaos for people and obviously affected aviation from this part of the world because it was a hub model where people from india and elsewhere were flying through here to the united states amongst other markets so this meant that there was some market share lost to europe as people hubbed elsewhere and also in general the aviation market across the world has been rocked a little bit not just by sort of slower demographics demand economics but also because of the sort of rising risk of terror and geopolitical tension. So it really wasn't the ideal situation. But this this week, with the lifting of the ban, because Abu Dhabi was the first airport in the world to meet the new enhanced security measures announced by the U.S. last week, it means that some confidence can return Mm -hmm. for passengers that want to fly through the UAE to the United States.
1: To what extent do you think this was... A diplomatic win because the way I see it, it just shows further confidence in Abu Dhabi. There was a lot of background work happening both in Washington and here in Abu Dhabi, and it really is a win. It's a testament to the strength of the UAE.
2: When the pre-clearance uh, facility, the one that allows you to check through U.S. immigration before you depart, was installed in Abu Dhabi, people were really surprised, um, and you know it was it was that in itself was a big win diplomatically and politically for the UAE. And now having that pre-clearance has shown how important that relationship is between the US and the UAE because even though those new measures were only announced to the world last week, because of the close relationship, because of some of the diplomatic work in Washington that was being done by the UAE ambassador Yusuf al Abu Dhabi was able to understand some of the requirements over the last 30 days that meant that when they were announced very quickly, they were able to get compliance. And that goes to show, to your point, about how this is more than just an aviation story or a security story, but it's actually a diplomacy story, too. Right.
0: On the consumer side, I mean, going from Abu Dhabi to New York is a 14-hour flight. Having a gadget, having your laptop and iPad, whatever it may be, is makes that time go by a lot faster. Could this be used as a selling point for Ittihad?
1: What's really important is that, while it's inconvenient for travelers at large, for business class travelers, that was the biggest hit. Because if you have a 14 hour flight, you're likely gonna want to work at least part of that time. And so that was the the class of travelers that was most affected and that actually hurt, commercially, airlines. And so that change is important. In addition to being a hub for people who would go to the US from other parts of um, the world that would find Abu Dhabi or the Emirates as a convenient transi- you know transit point, I believe that this the big change really is going to be for the business class traveler
2: we've been reporting on this since March, and immediately we went to our, 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 the people we speak to in the business world, the managers, the executives the various companies and said, What does this mean so on the one hand, you had managers saying well i don't want my my team on flights for fourteen hours not doing any work yeah. you know it's we don't want to give them a, an extra day off you know that was their attitude um, but also employees genuinely they wanted to do stuff on on board because it's a long, long period. But then also, you know, just being connected. It's funny because the last few years, all airlines have been trying to do is invest in technology to ensure that passengers are more and more connected on on a plane. And then this ban comes in and suddenly all that work seemed to have been undone. So, um, you know, as Mina says, it's, it's, it's gonna be really important for bringing back that premium travel which, of course, is is good margin business for for Etihad, but also gives Etihad, and this is what Peter Baumgartner, the CEO of the airline, said uh, to us, um, that this will compound our competitive edge because we have the pre-clearance facility. We are now the first to have the ban lifted. So all that market share that they lost, particularly from the Indian subcontinent, should come back pretty quickly now and gives them an edge versus some of their competitors elsewhere
0: it looks like other airlines might lift the ban as well. Do you think that this is a precursor for, uh, do you think Abu Dhabi lifting the ban is a precursor for other airlines to do the same?
2: Uh, The Department of Homeland Security said that what Abu Dhabi did to get compliance is a model for everyone else to follow. So probably, you know, airlines in the region and airports in the region will be looking to what, was done to try and replicate that. You need new equipment, new bomb detection equipment. You need new training for staff. You need extra staff even. You need pr- new processes and procedures. So as I was saying earlier, it's a bit of a new era for enhanced security um, at airports and for airlines. So it's not, it's, the scale of the job was massive as far as uh, Mr. Baumgartner was, was relaying to us. So it's not something that's gonna happen in a matter of days. I think Saudia was saying um, that by July 19th they should have their ban lifted. Um, at Saudi uh, airports. And Emirates certainly is working towards uh, that happening in Dubai as well. So it's just a matter of time. But you know, as I said, 280 airports, 180 airlines you know, have to be compliant.
1: What my concern is, is that we're putting in all these procedures for airlines going to the U.S. We're about everywhere else in the world. So when we're getting on flights to London or Kuala Lumpur or Amman, do we need to be having the same procedures? I, I'm very skeptical about a lot of this laptop ban stuff and I do think part of it had to do with the ongoing turf war about who actually has the better control of these um, flights to the US and back and so forth and with the American airlines that we've seen and Um, trying to take more of the market share that the Gulf carriers have been able to do. Because I find it difficult to believe that there are countries all over the world that are unconcerned about this, and only the U.S. has seen this as a security vulnerability that has to be addressed.
2: Well, the U.S. has led on this for a long, long time. If you go all the way back to um, 9-11, in the wake of that attack, uh, everything changed in terms of traveling by air. And if we think about the lots, the different measures that have come in, there was the liquids ban, for example. They've eased back on a little bit. For a period of time, that was, I mean, you ask any mother taking a baby through an airport after the liquids ban, and they're having to prove that their baby's milk isn't dangerous, Um, you know, that was very inconvenient. So it seems to be there are cycles where um, a huge apparatus that has been set up to manage the safety of air travel has to continually keep justifying its existence, whether, as uh, you said, cynically or otherwise, maybe there is a threat. Mm-hmm. But now that we have those in place, they're not going to suddenly dismantle um, all these groups and facilities that are focused on this.
0: Another story that's been dominating headlines this week is Mosul. Uh, the hunchback of al Nuri Mosque, an 800-year-old mosque draped in traditions. Locals say it began to tilt when Prophet Muhammad ascended to the heavens. The Christians say that the mosque hunched over, bowing towards the tomb of the Virgin Mary. The monument was clearly a source of pride, not only for the people of Mosul, but for all Iraqis. In a scorched earth policy, typical of a desperate retreat throughout history, ISIL militants in the old city of Mosul destroyed the city's most cherished monument. This was the exact mosque that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi infamously made his only appearance announcing the Khilafah. It's not out of character, but how is this going to play on the hearts and minds of Muslims in the Middle East? How does this reflect the image of ISIL sympathizers around the world?
1: You know, the destruction of al-Hadba is one that's really hurt many Iraqis emotionally, but it's also one of the tragedies is that now everybody refers to it as the place that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared a non-existent caliphate. I mean, it was the caliphate that never was. So someone that claimed that he could be the ruler of Muslims throughout the world, and yet he could only appear in public once and has disappeared to this day. We don't know if he's dead or alive, and it's kind of insignificant now whether he's dead or alive. And so, you know, in in some ways, I think it's important for us to remember as a beautiful monument that some people have called for the rebuilding of it. I don't know if they can do it as an architectural feat. But it was one that people sometimes criticized that, you know, why are we so concerned about a mosque or a minaret being destroyed when hundreds of thousands of people have either been killed or injured or displaced and homeless? But the significance of it was that, you know, Iraq has witnessed a lot of wars, uh, invaders, and so forth. But that stood the test of time and the fact that nothing is left to be sacred. And it was almost that ISIS didn't want to just destroy the present. They wanted to destroy the past. They wanted to take away people's sense of pride. And linked to it was, you know, forcing women to cover their faces and to have no identity, forcing men to have their beards grown. They wanted everyone to feel that their identity was stripped. And that, in large part, has now been pushed out of Mosul and most of Iraqi territory. So the territory that ISIL actually held is now free of ISIL. The problem is what happens next. And there are so many stories coming through of either houses being looted if they haven't already been looted. There are homes that are destroyed, you know, and there's no insurance policy that's coming through from either the Iraqi government or the coalition of 62 countries that are there. The level of suffering cannot be measured, and it's not just Mosul. I mean, it happened in Fallujah, it happened in some parts of Salah al and it continues to happen in Raqqa in Syria. And I think it's one of those things that the, the image of the minaret being blown up was almost this idea of, like you said, Nasser, scorched earth policy, but also this idea of we are not going to continue to destroy. There was a sense that this scar is not just going to go away with the Iraqi army rolling into different parts of uh, Mosul. The, the struggle continues.
2: It's interesting because Mosul, for me, signifies the the biggest lost opportunity for Iraq since the the invasion in 2003. I remember going to Mosul in that year, and it was the safest city in Iraq. I remember leaving Baghdad and driving up there and feeling free for the first time in a long time because there was no curfew, I could walk the streets at night. And then to see what's happened now, it, it defies belief. And And for the poor people who have taken one blow and one knock after another, and seemingly now they've been pushed to the, the limit, to the end, it's very hard to see where things are gonna go from here. And, and perhaps that's the point, that if ISIL can't win, they'll make sure that no one can win. And so really, we're, we're, we're facing a pretty bleak future, although a victory for the Iraqi army, no matter how painful or costly, is still good for the integrity and the future of the country.
1: Of course, it's interesting you mentioned integrity of the country because looming large is this deadline of September that the Kurdish regional government has placed to have a referendum on their independence. And so while everyone's been so focused on fighting ISIL, in just the last few weeks we've had the Kurdistan regional government announce that it wants to hold a referendum to break away. We've had protests in Najaf, in the holy city of Najaf in the south, where a protester was killed. And there has been very little done to try to reform and to curb the corruption that leaves people to this day in Iraq suffering without electricity for more than two or three hours a day. And so in a way, ISIL is significant, especially for those people that had to live under its terror. But the problems are so much larger than that. And I think that that's one of the untold stories of Iraq. You know, there's this focus on terror, and they're able to get all this attention. But in reality, the the picture, in some ways is more bleak, and in some ways is much more complex than is often alluded to. Because y- you
0: mentioned this referendum. I mean, the Battle of Mosul was truly a joint effort, uh, almost a reflection of Iraq's landscape and the demographics. We had pop potpourri of Iraqi forces, we had Sunni, Arab mili- military, Peshmerga fighters, Shia militia, all involved in this battle. How important is it for Iraq that their own countrymen and their own countrywomen were the ones who defeat ISIL?
1: It is important, but it would have been better to have had all of them fight under the Iraqi flag. The problem of Iraq since 2003, I mean, we've had many problems pre-2003, but since 2003 is that people who are fighting and doing it under different banners and what they hold sacred is not the Iraqi state or that they are military men and women um, defending the flag of their country. They're actually fighting for different reasons. So some people are fighting because they think it's a religious war. Some people are fighting because they want to go for independence. Some people are fighting because they're being paid, so they're you know almost mercenary. And some people are being fighting because they have no other choice.
2: It, it's been one year after another where we, we've had false hopes and false dawns. And it's, it's it's difficult to see where, in the context of, of the wider political situation and what's happening in Syria, where Iraq is gonna get a, a kind of free run, if you like, to actually make some headway. There's too much going on around it at the moment to really feel like the government's gonna have a handle on anything. And if the, if that referendum does go the way everyone's expecting, which is the Kurds will vote um, to leave, then that provides another problem that the government, which can't seem to get a break is dealing with and maybe isn't even equipped to deal with and the economy is not doing particularly well either and oil production is only now getting back to to the levels of where it's supposed to be so you know it's it's yes it's a victory and it's it's a needed one but there is so so much more that needs to be done
0: and so where we are this time next year anyone can guess you mentioned syria Half a million civilians have fled Mosul. Half a million people have been displaced. Is this adding to the crisis in the region? I mean, there's more refugees. Who knows what will become of those people? Does this factor into creating more strain?
1: I mean, the demographic shifts in the region, in addition to the humanitarian crises that it represents, is also a political one and a strategic one. There has been a push from certain... Uh, elements in the region and namely uh, Iran back to groups trying to change the demographics of the region because they want to control certain borders and they want to create a certain stronghold that stretches from Iran through to Iraq into Syria and down into Lebanon to supo- give support directly to Hezbollah and it's uh, again you know you think of the day-to-day suffering and hardship of people and then you take the longer view and you think this is really seismic changes that are happening in the region Um, and again yeah you haven't seen this level of displacement since World War II internationally but for the region itself we haven't seen anything like this since um, what happened to Palestine and the exodus of Palestinians you
2: know the borders are so porous at the moment in terms of you know countries on the map yes countries in name but in reality that whole area is, is, is open and is is not really subject to, to what we would understand. So it's it's a different it's a different kind of, of, dynamic that we're working with, and it's an opportunity too. These are people that need help, and need support. The displaced, not just in Iraq, but elsewhere, um, at the moment, you know, they're ending up in places like Jordan, Lebanon, um, in these camps, um, which doesn't give them much opportunity. They want to be home. They want to have a home. So you know, any uh, for a government to truly govern. They have to deal with these situations and actually deliver for their, for their people no matter what happens. And so really, it's a challenge and an opportunity at the moment.
0: Speaking of uh, challenges, moving on to what has been the biggest fallout in the GCC since its foundation in 1981, the country's diplomats and heads still refer to each other as brothers in public. But it seems that the family feud, as Washington puts it, has reached a new level. Regardless of the outcome of the meeting of the four Arab states on Wednesday in Cairo, won't this crisis taint the relationship moving forward? How is this rule going to define intra-Gulf relations in the future?
1: It has been really difficult to see the strain that has emerged. And I don't say emerged in the last few weeks, in the last few years with Qatar, because Saudi Arabia... UAE at the forefront, but also the rest of the GCC countries, have had concerns about Qatar. And for the last few years, everything from the role of Al Jazeera Arabic in instigating tensions, really pushing uh, the boundaries of sectarian tensions, um, excusing militias and so forth, that's only the tip of the iceberg. It goes much deeper, this idea of what vision of the region will we have emerging, Will it be one that prefers to have non-state actors carrying guns, getting support from abroad? Will it be one that is based on having political Islam as the alternative for governance or not? And that's what's at heart of it here for the people of the region. Yes, it's very interesting to follow and some people say, oh, this is fascinating to see what's happening between the different countries. But at the heart of it is a much bigger battle of ideas. And I really do think that this is what it's about. So I do think the GCC is changed, has changed because of it. And we're still unclear what the fallout will be. But yeah, it's irreversible.
2: Eight, nine years ago, the biggest challenge that the GCC had was where the central bank for the GCC once monetary union happened was going to be based. That, That was the kind of thing they were dealing with. And if you look at what they're dealing with now, it has more echoes of when it was formed in the early 80s to deal with you know, some of the upheavals going on in the region, you know, namely the Iran Iraq war and the the fallout from the Islamic revolution in Iran. And back then, it seemed that the momentum for the union, the Gulf Union uh, was stronger together. But when the threat seemingly is coming from within, then it becomes extremely difficult to align and extremely difficult to hold together. And it's a real test for the overall future and direction of the GCC and what that means. And it had been emerging as a very powerful block. I mean, the EU was negotiating with the GCC for a free trade agreement, not with individual countries, but with that, with that group. We're six months away from what's supposed to be a GCC-wide VAT that will be introduced. Again, more integration, c- more c- closer ties. But there's not much point in doing that on the economic front, on the social front, you know, with all these airlines we're talking about flying around, we're closer, more closely connected than ever. Technology is bringing us closer than ever. We've seen the conversation on social media. But if we're not generally aligned, if we're not
0: in the same direction, we don't believe the same things, then all of that is, is, is for nothing. They are meeting the four ministers of states in Cairo to discuss what the next steps are. What are your uh, expectations of that meeting? What, we, what might we see coming out of
1: that? We'll see a united front, and we'll see one that really explains to us what the next steps can be, what the path forward is. It, of course, hinges upon what Qatar's response will be. And it's clear that the four states, by accepting this extension of a deadline to hear back from Qatar, is that that they are willing to listen and that they're keen to come to a political solution and a political resolution to this. So I expect to hear from them some clarity on what they think is acceptable or not from Qatar. But in large part, they're going ahead with the isolation unless we see real change from Qatar. So at, the, at this moment in time, it's really looking more towards what Doha does than what Cairo will announce because Cairo, it will be a continuation of isolation of Doha.
2: What's well, been apparent from the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain has been the heavy heart that this has been done with. This has not been done lightly. This isn't, you know, a reaction. This is, as Mina was saying, coming for a long, long time. And they're not happy that they have to do it. The tone out of Qatar has not been the same. I think whatever the response is, how that response is given is far more important as a starting point for negotiations than what is in the response. If there is some, you know, idea that they are taking this in the same way of this is not where we should be. You know, as you were saying, there's brothers and we, 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 we need, we understand that we shouldn't have got to this point, but we have, if they take it seriously as all they've been asked to do from day one and they begin to show that, then perhaps there's some light. But if that tone doesn't change, it's going to be
0: very difficult to, to make any kind of agreement. To shift into a different topic, maybe in terms of business for Qatar, we're already getting reports from people in Doha talking about disruption to their services, to trade. I know that a lot of steel in Qatar is sourced from companies here based in the UAE. This is clearly not good for business, Mustafa, but both sides are making it look as if they are unaffected. What is the reality for markets in the countries involved and in the region?
2: We've been reporting on this for some time, and of course there's an impact. I mean, Qatar's stock market, you know has has seen falls since this started on June the fifth. Their banking systems affected. Um, certainly their aviation has been affected. Um, their ports and their transport links have been affected. They, the GCC countries are intertwined economically and financially. as I was saying, they were moving towards a monetary union at some point. Um, you know that was the, that was the talk. So to kind of say that Qatar would be unaffected by this is just posturing. Because it is. And, you know, if we talked about socially how um, there are many family ties between uh, Qatar and elsewhere in in the GCC, then certainly that applies doubly so in terms of the economy. How many investment holdings that Qatari companies have in companies in the UAE and and vice versa. But more importantly is, um, you know, day-to-day business that's being done um, is affected. Um, People can't get money uh, from Qatar to the UAE and vice versa, for example. And that's very deliberate. That's part of this isolation because of where that money might be going to. But um, to to say that they're unaffected is not the case. They can probably survive. They've got reserves. That's true. Um, They have energy. You know, So that that keeps the lights on. And they're able to to bring in food and, and other consumer items through other links. But it becomes more expensive and the quality of life begins to deteriorate. It's one thing after one month, two months, three months but you know if we if we're still talking about this you know by the end of the year then there'll be significant impact
1: and the gcc countries as a whole wanted to work together and wanted as mustafa was saying to get closer together so that vision is impacted for sure qatar is impacted directly and we can see that and for those people in the region who have businesses across including qatar they're impacted but at the same time it's it is important to note that it is a an isolation and a boycott from those countries that, you know, very strongly have have um, taken this step, mm-hmm. but it isn't a blockade as such. So it's not like we're seeing Qatar is going to, you know, starve or they're going to be, you know, that. I mean, that would be uh, terrible. I think for uh, the civilians where it, or the citizens of Qatar, which and the residents there, and nobody wants to see that. So I think that's also important to see. It's it's making life more difficult, and it's also not the norm. This is not normal. And it can't continue that way. But if it had to, as far as the countries involved are, I think on all sides, they're like, yeah, we can keep this up financially, but it's going to be painful.
2: I mean, Qatar, like the UAE, has been selling itself, you know, as a business destination, as a leisure destination, as a destination for, for expats to come and work. And whether it's the financial sector or the energy sector or otherwise, they've got a World Cup to plan for so already there was there was a lot of skepticism from the the wider world about whether they could host that kind of event and this this probably will will add to that add to those voices and there will be some concern about a country that can't get on with its neighbors being able to host an event that is about hosting the world and 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 being at the center of it i know it's a long way away but it's it's the beginning of, it, it's not the beginning. We're right in the middle of that process.
0: In talking about people going to Qatar uh, and attracting foreign talent to the region, there's a lot of competition between the UAE and Qatar to attract the best and the brightest, as you said earlier. Down the line, years from when this role has either been resolved or settled down to become the status quo, will people looking to work in the region, look at this role and take into consideration when choosing between the two?
2: They'll probably want more compensation. I'll be honest. I mean, no, because that, they, they will look at it and say, well, perhaps the quality of life isn't quite what I hoped or there's the risk to it. So if I'm going to choose Qatar over anywhere else, they will want to be remunerated accordingly.
1: And I do think that what happened over the last few weeks alerted people to many things that are going on in Qatar in terms of relationships otherwise that might make people coming from abroad think twice and there's a lack of stability there. But stability is important for the entire region not just for Qatar, and I think that's one of those things that for the people of these countries, but also those coming to work in, there is you know, always this idea of where do we have stability, and that's, I think, how the choice will be made if they have to choose between the two. But I'm biased, I moved to Abu Dhabi, so I'm not so sure you can take my word for it, but I chose to come here.
0: Chances of a military intervention?
1: Chances of a military intervention? No one from Saudi Arabia or the UAE or Egypt or Bahrain is looking for a military intervention. It's been interesting to see that Qatar started speaking about, you know, the Turkish military base and that we've got muscle and so forth. So I believe it was almost their way of trying to say, we don't care. It was posturing. So chances are difficult to talk about because the intention isn't there. But if certain things change, then as the Americans love to say, all options are on the table. But I don't really see it in the calculations, at least from Abu Dhabi sitting in Abu Dhabi. You don't see it in people's calculation or intent.
0: Mustafa, Amina, thank you for coming on the show. This has been uh, the first in a weekly series of podcasts coming out of The National. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Goodbye.